In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord, my God, I firmly believe that you are here. There you see me, and there you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As we begin our prayer, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us relive the wonder and the surprise of the resurrection. Because as we read the gospel accounts of what the apostles and the the women who accompanied Jesus experienced, what we see is a very clear expression of something absolutely unexpected, of amazement, surprise, and wonder. And we can, and the Holy Spirit can guide us, experience that ourselves. Our goal is not to experience some sort of overwhelming emulsion in the first place, but to be led by the Holy Spirit, to see ourselves in the room with the apostles, the other women who were with them, and to imagine the confusion and the uncertainty that they felt before the resurrection, before Jesus appeared to them. Having seen him crucified, having experienced the horror of that betrayal, of his torture, how they were beset by rumors and speculation and trying to figure out what would happen next, the fear of not knowing. In a certain sense, all of these are familiar things to us. Uncertainty, fear, confusion, a lack of clarity about the future. They're all things that we have experienced before, things that we can easily imagine. And then, in the midst of that very familiar, understandable experience, The Gospel tells us, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Startled and terrified. Something so strange and unexpected Strange and unexpected. Imagine if just right now, as we're considering this in our prayer, Jesus was in front of you, right now, saying to you, peace be with you. I don't think your reaction or my reaction would be, oh, naturally, of course, this is is what I was expecting, this is what normally happens in the morning to me. Startled and terrified, they thought they were seeing a ghost. That amazement and wonder at something at the once familiar, because they can recognize it as Jesus, you and I would have a harder time even at that, because we've never seen him. We hadn't spent, as the apostles had, three years in his company, talking with him and walking with him and sharing meals with him and listening to him and 
and, and laughing with him and growing in friendship with him in that very one-to-one human physical way. But even though they had that history, even though they had, had that shared past with Jesus, they were startled and terrified by what was before them. And that's, that's helpful for us in our prayer. That being startled. And even, yes, that being terrified. Because all of us have a tendency to domesticate Jesus. To reduce him to a familiar word. Pictures that we're familiar with. Ideas. And by domesticating him, he becomes someone who doesn't really challenge us. Who doesn't really upset our normal way of thinking and acting, someone who's comfortably there and we can get along with our normal way of acting and reacting and thinking. But the resurrected Jesus, to recognize him, challenges all of that. Because to have the resurrected Jesus in front of you and me and saying, peace be with you, means that everything has changed. It is no longer business as usual. All of the normal natural human experiences, the calculations that we make of what is worth it and what isn't worth it, of what we should be afraid of and what we shouldn't be afraid of, all of that calculation in front of Jesus resurrected needs to change. It's upended. That is the amazement, the excitement, and the joy of Easter morning, the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection is not simply Jesus coming back to life. We need to have that very clear. Lazarus had already done that. And Lazarus was with them. And when Lazarus walked in the room, they weren't startled and terrified. The same had happened with the 12-year-old daughter of the official in the, in the synagogue who Jesus raised from the dead. And the son of the widow of Naim, who had been raised from the dead, these, these were things that Jesus had done. They, they came back to life. They were human lives that picked up where they had left off. That was something that had already happened, and people had seen that. I mean, it was an amazing miracle. People were surprised and amazed by it. But in the presence of those people who had come back to life, there was a very clear understanding that they were just the same people starting over again, kind of picking up where they had left off, as I say. But the resurrection of Jesus is categorically more. Because Jesus stands before them in the flesh as God. He was God before. It's not that he's suddenly become God after the resurrection. But in the resurrection, his his body, his flesh, his presence radiates that divinity in a way that the apostles hadn't experienced before. There's a strangeness now about Jesus' presence. When I mean strange, I don't mean weird. I just mean unfamiliar. Something that, that provokes a different way of thinking and, and responding. We see this, for example, in the, in the way that Jesus simply appears in the upper room. 
None of the gospel accounts say that Jesus you know, walked through a wall or that he opened the door. He just appears. In other accounts, we see with Mary Magdalene, we see when the apostles go fishing on the Sea of Galilee, that they don't recognize Jesus at first. They think he's someone else. Mary Magdalene thought he was a gardener. And then suddenly he becomes recognizable on the road to Emmaus as well. The two disciples don't recognize Jesus until he's recognizable. And this is because his physical body is now no longer confined by the laws of space-time. He's no longer a prisoner of material conditions and rules. His body, after the resurrection, is now a perfect participation in the freedom and the spontaneity of God. And it's in this body, it's as this person, that Jesus stands before them and says, Peace be with you. We do well in our prayer to just savor how beautiful those words are. The first words that Jesus wants to say after the resurrection, he stands in front of them, that that amazement, that being startled, that even being taken with fear, the first words out of Jesus' divine lips is peace be with you. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't berate them for what they had done, how they had been behaving, which is maybe what you and I would expect. For what we would expect if Jesus resurrected were to appear before me, that he would be there to correct me, to, to point out all the ways in which I come up short and betray him and fail and sin. And probably the reason that we expect that is because maybe that's what we would do if we had been let down and hurt and disappointed by people that we had given everything for. But of course, that is not Jesus. As God says to the prophets in the Old Testament, as far as the heavens above my, of, are above the earth, so far are my ways above your ways. He offers us a love that we have to receive because we are not naturally familiar with it. A love that gives and transmits peace. The peace of God. The Shalom Yahweh. This perfect self-possession and the peace of God's eternal presence. At the Last Supper, Jesus had said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. How does the world give peace to us? At most, the world can give us a kind of Zen experience, kind of a momentary balance and equilibrium. Things are okay. Maybe it can give us a a drug-induced peace, an alcohol-induced peace, a sleep-induced peace. But we all know that that's, at best, temporary. We all know, at best, how superficial it can be. That blissful moment is precisely that, a moment. That is not the peace that Jesus comes to give us. 
He's not coming to just give us a peace of simply feeling that everything is okay. The peace that Jesus gives us is the peace of absolute victory. Jesus is in our midst as untouchable by evil opposition. This is what he offers us when he says, peace be with you. That perfect, untouchable bliss that God has possessed from before the creation of the world is now present in the resurrected body of Jesus, that familiar face who turns to us and says, peace be with you. And, and that reaction happens, and then St. Luke goes on and tells us in this account of the resurrection appearance, Jesus said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? That is a question made from that peace. And right now, Jesus can look into the heart of, you, of each one of us. And that lack of faith, that uncertainty, that self-doubt, that lack of confidence and purpose, Jesus looks in and speaks from his peace and says, Why? Why do you stay there? My peace I give to you. Why don't you take it? Why don't you claim it in faith? I have made you mine. I am calling you by name. I have suffered on the cross. I have shown you in deeds and actions that there is no limit to my love. That no matter how much you oppose me and offend me and reject me, I will not pull back. Why then are you frightened? Why doubt? Because you feel bad? Because there's stress in your life? Because you see how things are difficult? Because there's opposition and resistance from other people? Because the world is a mess and there's suffering and pain and darkness? Is that why you still doubt? Peace be with you, Jesus says. And as we see Jesus and hear him say these words to the disciples who with their eyes wide open, their mouths uh, ajar, just standing there in amazement before Jesus, we can take a little bit of consolation noticing how even in front of the resurrected Jesus, it was hard for them to believe. I mean, think about that. Jesus standing before them, physically resurrected, he asked them, why are you still not believing? You know, at times, we might be tempted to think that it was easier for them. Easier precisely because they could see Jesus. And maybe we could sometimes you know, have a conversation with ourselves. Well, if I had that chance, then of course I'd have a stronger faith. Then of course I'd be more committed. It would be a lot easier for me if I could see what Thomas saw, if I could touch what Thomas touched. But what if Jesus actually loves me more than I imagine? What if he actually knows what is best for me? 
and that in his mercy he invites me to have faith in the way that he does. Because don't forget, as Saul would experience on the way to Damascus, Saul, who saw the resurrected Jesus and fell to the ground blinded, Saul would experience that it is a tremendous thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a tremendous grace and therefore a tremendous responsibility. Let's renew our faith as we contemplate our Lord resurrected in the Blessed Sacrament, physically present among us, that Jesus is drawing us and comes close to us in the best way for us to believe. He's not making it harder. He's making it easier. And he wants you and I to believe because of the witness of others. He wants us to believe in and through the church, feeling ourselves a part of this family, this family that is the family of God, that is the church, a family that stretches across time and space. And to know ourselves to be members of something that is greater than ourselves. Something that is greater than me without annihilating me. It's something that, that makes me unique while making me a part of something greater. Let's go back to listening with the disciples in the room. Listen as Jesus goes to amazing lengths to show him how real he is. Because through that amazement, to that lack of faith, Jesus turns to them and says, Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. As we always try to do in our prayer, contemplating the gospel as a reality that is present, a reality that we participate in, try to see the wounds on his hands. You've never seen wounds from a nail in someone's hands. Neither had the apostles. And just consider how strange and unexpected that was to see those marks. Very different from what we would ever expect to see on a hand. And yet it's not unsettling, it's not troubling, because it speaks of victory. And this is why Jesus very happily and proudly shows them his wounds. It speaks of the victory of pain overcome, of death dealt with and put in its place. And then we try to see and imagine that larger wound as Jesus pulls back the robes of his garment and shows that large impression in his chest made by the spear. Thomas will actually trace it with his fingers. As Jesus says to the other apostles, touch and see. And if we try to imagine Jesus saying that to me, touch and see here, my hand, here, this wound 
in my side, how would I react? Would I be too, too afraid? Would I pull back? Would I be embarrassed? Well, think about how I react when I am told the body of Christ. Just think of how many times I've been told that. The body of Christ. And I'm being told not only to touch it and to see, but I'm being invited to eat it. What's the difference? Isn't it just a simple difference of appearance? It's just the same thing, the same reality, the same person, the same body, that same physical presence that appears to the apostles in the upper room, but you and I perhaps domesticate it. We don't have that wonder and amazement that as often as we like, daily, he comes to us in his body as gift so that we might live because of him, so that we might live for him. And that in itself is, is something that this amazement and wonder of Easter needs to wake us up to. St. Luke continues after Jesus telling us what the apostles do, after Jesus shows them his hands and his side and he invites them to touch, to, to move their fingers through those wounds that have been healed and cauterized by the explosion of light that is the resurrection. St. Luke continues saying, while in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. Even as they touch, they're still disbelieving and wondering. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. Now, I said they were disbelieving. I said, St. Luke says, in their joy, they were disbelieving. That's an interesting kind of disbelief. Because I think what we need to see in this is that when St. Luke says they were disbelieving in their joy, he's not saying that they lacked faith, but rather it's almost like an explosion of faith. Kind of paradoxically, it's so amazing. They believe it. It's just like they, they can't believe what they're believing. That makes any sense. I can't believe that I believe this. It's just so over anything and beyond anything I could have imagined or expected. I can't believe that I'm believing this. That's the joy. That's the explosion of faith. And as we contemplate the resurrection, that is the faith that we need to ask for. Because just think about it. Doesn't it make sense that any real growth in faith is going to involve that, wow, I can't believe this? Because if it didn't, if it was just like, oh yeah, sure, that, that's, that kind of naturally follows and makes sense with, yeah, that's, that's a logical conclusion from my assessment of reality. Well, what a poor little faith that would be if it kind of fit in to the small, mediocre schemes with which we naturally face life in the world. But rather, to be receiving God's own wisdom, his own life, his own love, 
to be receiving a knowledge of God as he knows himself, which is what the gift of faith is, then we too, like the apostles, should be disbelieving in our joy. Disbelieving not because we don't accept it, but because we're blown away. Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith so that we can experience that little earthquake that happened on Easter Sunday morning. One of the most ancient Easter antiphons in the liturgy of the church is this. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Maybe that's a very helpful synthesis of what we've been considering here. Awake, O sleeper. Lord, help us to wake up from the sleepiness of a routine faith, from the sleepiness of a mechanical love, from the sleepiness of a weak generosity. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. That is the message for us as we stand before Jesus resurrected on Easter. St. Paul, years later, writing to the Colossians, will try to draw out the much deeper significance of what the apostles experienced without fully understanding what was happening. They were, as we've seen, disbelieving in joy. They were amazed. They were shocked. They were startled. It took time and prayer and consideration and guidance by the Holy Spirit to understand what that, uh, what that history-changing event meant. And St. Paul expresses it in this way. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. In prayer, we should take these words very seriously, these words of St. Paul, because they're words of the Holy Spirit, to let them lead our minds and our wills by the hand. That what St. Paul is saying is that in baptism, we died to a normal human biological way of living and thinking. And we were resurrected, we're given the possibility of resurrected and living the life that is now hidden in Jesus. So my real life is not what I see and feel on the surface. My real life is hidden with the resurrected Jesus. He is my life, actually. And when he is revealed, then my real life will be gloriously revealed. And if we can become convinced of this in our prayer, that that's my real life, then that, as we said before, changes everything. What matters? What I want to be striving for? What I want to sacrifice for? What I consider victory and what I consider loss? So living for, for, for him, believing that my life is hidden in him, means that victory is when I love. Victory is when I give myself. Victory is when I begin again in confidence, in trust, 
and God the Father's love. And if I start thinking in those terms, I'm going to be at odds with a lot of the ways in which our culture thinks about victory and success, which is normally measured in terms of approval, in terms of popularity, in terms of recognition, measurable, quantifiable, and inverted commas, success. So we need to drop those measurings and realize that my life is hidden with Christ so that even if I am sick and suffering, even if everything goes pear-shaped, I still am free in Christ to love and to believe and to trust in him, and that is victory. That is my participation in the Shalom Yahweh, the peace of God, that is given to us in the victory of Jesus' resurrection. And that's why as Christians... That's why the characteristic for us should be this joy and this peace. St. Josemaria, whenever he would encourage us to engage full on in living our Christian, Christian life, would always put before us that the, the prize of that, if you like, if that's the right word, the consequence may be better, of living in that way was gaudium cum pace, joy with peace. And he would say that because that's what we see with Jesus resurrected. That's what Christian victory looks like. It's not gloating. It's not rubbing anybody's face in it. And look, I was right and you were wrong. Ha ha, I win. Gaudium cum pace, joy with peace. And that joy and peace you and I experience right now in the middle of our, our weakness and our frailty and our sinfulness. We are, we are fragile needy, dependent people. And God knows that. And he, that's why he wants us to rely on one another and to serve one another and to support one another. And he is present in our midst. Whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I, the resurrected Jesus, am present in your midst. But the time will come, and we believe in it with certainty and renew our faith in it this morning of the resurrection, that in our bodies we will participate in this resurrection that we've contemplated in Jesus. That is when our being children of God will be consummated because our bodies will participate in it. That same freedom, that same peace, that same spontaneity will not just be in a, in a passing way as we're experiencing it now in this life, but it will be perfect and untouchable and eternal. And therefore, it's worthwhile to strive in our weakness, in our limitation, to be faithful to Jesus now. Let's ask our Lord to help us receive as very good news what he says to the apostles after the resurrection. To receive this as good news. huh? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We hear this as good news, and we hear it as even better news, because as St. Josemaria reminded us, the way in which we can live that command to go and make disciples of all the nations, the way that we can say yes to that command of the resurrection is in our work, in our friendships, 
And all the circumstances and encounters that we have, getting to know people and helping their lives be better and understanding them, taking where them, them where they're at, but not leaving them there. So that they might come to that liberating obedience of this command to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead and therefore everything has changed. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.